For our sermon this Sunday, we are going to do a sermon that I've entitled, I Believe in the Church. As you remember, just a few moments ago, we recited together in, with one voice, the Apostles' Creed. And it's in the Apostles' Creed that we make this statement and this profession of faith, that I believe in the church. I believe in the church. But the question is, as we begin 2018, as we begin this next year, I want to answer this question. What do you believe about the church? We stand and we recite it. For some, we've been reciting it since we've been a child. We can recite it from memory. I believe in the church. But as we begin this new year, I want us to ask the question, what do I believe concerning the church? Because I am firmly convinced that we will never truly buy into this and really grasp, why do we do this? Why do we come every Sunday and dedicate one or two or maybe more hours every Sunday to this? Why is it all worth it? I'm sure for some of you, you might maybe even ask that question, Why do I make this a priority? Why is the Lord's Day important? Why being a part of a church and not just coming on Sunday, but being a part of the life and the mission and the ministry of the church? What is it that I believe about the church that it makes it all worthwhile? Well, our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2. And it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, presents to us the Ephesian church and through the Ephesian church and through his writings to us this morning, a vision of the church. And I want us to go through this vision that Paul has for the church. He explains to the church in Ephesus, this is what the church is. When you say you believe in the church, this is the church, make no mistake about it. And I want to spend a few minutes going through Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 through 22, as Paul gives to us this incredible vision of what the church truly is. And I pray that we would be reminded of it as we begin a new year together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, hear the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower surely fades, but the word of our Lord, no, the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. They say with a vision, you can change the world. The new movie out right now, The Darkest Hour, has a lot of our attention on the great Sir Winston Churchill, the great leader of Great Britain and ultimately one of the key leaders of the Western world as the Western world watched this thing as known as the Nazi plague began to consume Eastern Europe and eventually starts uh, parts of Western Europe. It was God using a man like Winston Churchill who said before Parliament, he gave them this vision that we will fight them. We will fight them on land and we will fight them at sea. And we will not back down. And we will not back down until every one, last one of them is gone and defeated. And he rallied a nation and ultimately a world to fight back against darkness and evil. Martin Luther King Jr., who can forget that incredible scene in front of the Lincoln Memorial where he stands up and says, I have a plan, I have a strategy. No. What does he say? He says, I have a dream. And he gives to the American people a dream, a vision of what this country could be. And who was Martin Luther King Jr. standing in front of? Another person, Abraham Lincoln, who just a hundred years later gave the country a vision of what this nation could be, and so on and so forth. Great people are called at times by God to give incredible visions. Well, it was 2,000 years ago that God gave Paul, the Apostle Paul, this incredible vision of what the church is supposed to be. And we see these words throughout Ephesians chapter 2, but it's a word that Paul is very prone to use, and it's the word remember. And he says it twice in just the passage I read, but all throughout Ephesians and all throughout Paul's epistles, he uses this word remember. Why? Because it's often in even churches that we forget why we're here and what all of this is about. We forget our purpose and our mission and our vision and what we're called to be, salt of the earth and light of the world for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so I want to draw upon three ideas that Paul gives to the church as far as who we're supposed to be. And when we say we believe in the church, that this would be the church that we believe in. The first thing that Paul identifies is in verses 11 through 13. He identifies the church as a beloved community. A beloved community that knows and remembers what? Remembers the gospel. In verse 11, he says, remember at one time you were Gentiles. What did that mean for a Gentile in the first century? It meant at one time you were alienated. At one time you were not part of the covenant. At one time you were not part of the promised people. Remember who you were. 
You were unholy people. And in verse 12, there's the word again. Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and nothing but a stranger. But he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were alienated, far off, estranged from God, have been brought near how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul wants the church to remember that first and foremost, you are a community that is loved by God. Never forget it. Remember, remember, remember. Remember where you were and remember what God has done to save you and redeem your life. That when a church forgets the gospel, when a church drifts away from the gospel, it ceases to be the church. A love for the gospel. A love for the gospel. Why? Because Paul identifies for us in these first few verses that here is the truth that you always must remember and hold on to. That God is holy and you are not. But the message of the gospel is this. That a holy God loves unholy people. That a perfectly righteous God loves imperfect people like you and me. Paul wants the church of Ephesus and ultimately us this morning to remember you are a community that is loved. To remember the depth of God's love for you in Christ and for others as well. When the church experiences this, when the the church grasps the depths of the love of God, it's what brings energy and excitement and enthusiasm into the church. You can have all of the programs and plans and strategies in the world, but if it loses the heart of the gospel, the man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They remove the light and the passion and the excitement of the church. Marsha Linehan is in her 70s and she's a professor at the University of Washington and she's the leading expert in dealing with people with personality disorders. And these aren't just your normal run-of-the-mill personality disorders. She works with people that the world and our culture has classified as irredeemable that there is nothing, no medication, no treatment that can cure these people. She became acquainted with this research because she herself went through a severe personality disorder. See, she grew up in a home where she was considered absolutely worthless, especially compared to her siblings. She always thought that her siblings were more beautiful and more talented and more gifted. And so she, and she grew up in a home where her father told her that she has no hope, that she has no gifts, that she has no talent. And she absolutely hated herself. And this self-hatred produced a, med- a, a mental disorder that drove her at the age of 19 into a mental institution. So bad was her mental disorder that she was put in isolation. They said she was one of the most disturbed patients that they ever seen. But today she is the leading expert. What happened? How do you go from being in isolation to being the leading expert in mental disorders? Well, it was when she was 21 and in that institution, she walked into a chapel and she looked up at the cross and she fell to her knees and it was at that moment that the coin dropped and she said, Jesus alone is my salvation. Jesus alone is my rock. Jesus gave up his life for me. 
And she experienced in that moment such radical love and acceptance. She experienced the radical love of the gospel and drove her to create a therapy based on radical acceptance. You see, when a church experiences this radical acceptance, it becomes a beautiful church. You know what also this means when a church understands that they are a beloved community? And we understand that a holy God loves unholy people like us. It means that as a church, we don't have the time nor the place to be what my dad used to call nitpicky. We don't have the time to be nitpicky about our church or about our friends or about the other people around us because we all realize that we're in the same place except for the grace of God. Paul wants us to understand that we are a beloved community, loved by the radical grace of God. The second thing he wants us to see is that not only are we a beloved community, we are a unified committee. Uh, committee. A lot of committees do. But a unified uh, community. In verses 14 through 16, Paul talks about this unity that has happened through Christ. Paul talks in verses 14 through 16, and he uses language like this, that he has made us one and that he has broken down the dividing wall. The dividing wall in verse 14 says that of hostility. And then in verse 15, it says that he created in himself, Jesus creates in himself what? A new man, a new creature, a new creation. That in verse 16 says that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. You see, what the church is, is one people of God from different backgrounds, different cultures, different places, different stories, all becoming one. That is the miracle of the church that only Christ can do. The two become one. But how does this happen? It says that Christ is the one who does what? That in verse 16, it says that through the cross, he kills the hostility. What does that mean? It means that everything that this world uses to produce hostility, everything this world and our culture uses to bring a wedge in between us, Christ has took it, taken it on himself. It is through the cross that the, that the wall of hostility, that the hatred of hostility has been destroyed once and for all. 2,000 years ago, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. And everything today that the world says separates us, only through Christ and the cross and the cross alone can we be made one. What does this mean? It means that the Christian woman in Soweto, Africa, might have a closer connection to me this morning than maybe even the people I grew up with. Think about that. The unity that comes through the work of Christ inside the church, God creates a new people, a new creation, one new man, it says, a new humanity, a new creation, a new people of God. We are one. As I said in my opening, the welcome and the call to worship, would God make us one as a church? As who? As he is one. As the Trinity is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So not only are we a beloved community and a unified community, but lastly, we're a growing community. In verses 19 through 22, 
Paul ends this passage by saying, what does all of this result in? A church that understands that they are loved by God, a church that understands that they are not divided, but that they are one in Christ, eventually begins to grow and build and expand. Look at all the words that Paul uses. He, through verse 19 through 22, he uses words like household in verse 19. In verse 20, he says, building on a foundation, cornerstone, structure, being joined together, and then lastly, in verse 21, that grows together in a holy temple. You see, Paul uses all these words, household, building, structure, growth, because he believes. Paul wants us to understand that when you become a part of the family of God, that you take on the mission of God. And the mission of God is to go out and to preach the gospel and to proclaim the good news, to build and to expand. You see, when a church falls into the trap of isolation and self-preservation, it will eventually cease to exist. But the church of Jesus Christ is a church that grows and builds and expands. Why? So that others might come into this space, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Those that are walking in darkness would come in and that they would see a great light. In 1974, E. James Kennedy invited to this pulpit Dr. Billy Graham for the dedication ceremony of this sanctuary. And Billy Graham reminded the congregation nearly 60 years ago, and I would remind you again this morning, that this congregation started with just 45 people. But he says this, he says this congregation started with 45 people, but they loved God and they loved evangelism and they loved the gospel of Jesus Christ and they went out and it eventually became a phenomenon that the entire world began to watch. And God brought the increase. May we not be a church that is concerned with just self-preservation. May we not just be a church that stays in isolation, but may we build on that foundation and that vision to go out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we would bring people into this space and into this church so that they might hear the life-saving message of the gospel. See, a church full of people that would say, I want others to be a part of what God is doing here. I call it a holy restlessness, that we, we are restless until Christ comes again. <clears throat> William Borden, William Borden was a man who was born in Chicago. William Borden went to school in Chicago. William Borden was the sole heir to the $20 million fortune of the Borden Dairy Farm. When William Borden was 16 years old, he became a Christian. And from the time he became a Christian, he said this, that I will now for the rest of my life attempt to say yes to Jesus and no to myself. And when he received the inheritance at the age of 19, he said, I will now go out and systematically give away my fortune. And he received a Bible upon his graduation from high school, and on the inside cover of his Bible, he wrote these words, no reserve. I will not hold back from serving the king and the kingdom of God. There will be no reserve in my life. I will hold nothing back. Well, William Borden went off to Yale, and even a hundred years ago, there was just a few Christians on the campus of Yale. So he decided to form a prayer group. 
a prayer group that would meet together to pray for revival, to pray for one another. And under the words in his Bible, no reserve, he also wrote the word, no retreat. He told his Bible study group, he said, we will not back down. No reserve, no retreat. By the time William Borden graduated, 1,000 out of the 1,300 students at Yale were part of these small groups. Some of these small groups produced future ministers that would go out and plant churches all throughout New England. No reserve, no retreat. Upon graduation from Yale, he enrolled at Princeton Seminary because he wanted to be trained to become a missionary to the Muslims. But before he went off to the mission field, he decided to go to Egypt to learn Arabic. But while he was in Egypt, he caught spinal meningitis and he died at the age of 25. And when they returned his sparse personal effects to the family, they found that Bible And on the front cover, it said, no reserve. On the front cover, it said, no retreat. But the day before he died, he wrote underneath, no regrets. You see, for William Borden, he lived his life in such a way with one single holy passion, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets, one holy passion. Oh, may God fill this church with William Borden's. Men and women that say, I have one holy passion, and that is to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. But where did William Borden come up with this? What produced such a holy passion in his life? To give it all away. Well, several years later, a group of missionaries went to Egypt and they asked to see the gravesite of William Borden. And when they came up to the grave, they saw the tombstone and the epitaph read this. William Borden. There is no explanation for his life except for the love of God. That's it. No explanation for a life that was lived like this except for the love of God. Brothers and sisters, there is no explanation for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church except for the amazing love of God. For you this morning that have been transformed by Christ, there is no explanation for your life except for the amazing love of God. And I'll leave you with this question. Have you been transformed by this love? Have you been transformed by the amazing love of God so that you too can be a part of a community, a community that understands what it means to be a part of a group that is growing and unified, but most importantly, beloved? The good news this morning is that you can know this love, that you can be part of this community that understands the radical acceptance of Jesus Christ. You too can know the love of God, but here's even better news. You don't have to earn it because you never will. And you don't deserve it because you never will. You see, the gift of God's amazing love as performed on the cross of Jesus Christ is a gift that is offered to you today simply by believing. 
And the promise of the scriptures is this, that if you are born again, that you too will see the kingdom of God and that you can be saved today. That you can walk out those doors this morning knowing the acceptance of the king, knowing the radical love of God, that can be yours today. And an invitation is offered to you to be a part of a family that knows what it means to be loved. Now that's a church I can believe in.